In the shuffling madness of the locomotive breath Runs the all-time loser headlong to his death Oh, he feels the piston scraping, steam breaking on his brow Old Charlie stole the handle and the train It won't stop going, no way to slow down Welcome to Sup Media Reviews, the podcast that never needs spoiler alerts because it takes you back in time to relive the nostalgia of classic TV shows and films that you've probably already seen. I'm your host, Kiara, and each week I'll dive into the archives to bring you my take on movies and TV shows from at least 20 years ago. From cult classics to forgotten gems, I'll review them all and give my honest opinion on their impact and whether or not they still hold up today. Join me as we revisit the iconic characters, memorable moments, and timeless themes that made these shows and films so special. So take a break from adulting and get ready for a trip down memory lane with Sup Media Reviews. What's up, Home Slices? Thanks so much for tuning into Sup Media Reviews. I'm Kiara, and I am super stoked to review one of my childhood favorite movies, the amazing 1995 Jumanji. Jumanji is based on the 1981 children's picture book of the same name by Chris Van Allsburg. The movie features Robin Williams as Alan Parrish, Bonnie Hunt as Sarah Whittle, a young Kirsten Dunst as Judy Shepard, and Bradley Pierce as Peter Shepard. I watched this movie so often as a child, but prior to rewatching it for this review and it had been about 10 years since I last saw it so I'm eager to watch it as an adult and see if my feelings have changed at all. As always here are some fun facts about the movie. Robin Williams was beloved by the keen New Hampshire townsfolk during the filming of Jumanji. He was even presented with the keys to the city by Keene's mayor in 1994. After his death in 2014, Keene residents crafted a makeshift memorial of flowers and candles below the Paris Shoes sign and even organized a public screening of the film. According to the author of the picture book, Jumanji, Chris Van Allsburg, the word Jumanji is Zulu for many effects, which alludes to the exciting consequences of the game as mentioned in the film. In the final fun fact, Bradley Pierce, who played Peter, underwent three hours of applying prosthetic makeup for his scenes as a monkey for about 15 to 20 days. He enjoyed going through the process and wearing the makeup. His prosthetic makeup is actually a highlight of this film for me because it holds up actually today. So whoever did his makeup did a great job. So if you want to check out the 1995 version of Jumanji, you can watch it on Netflix or Sling as of the recording of this episode. So let's talk about my personal connection to this film. I mentioned this earlier, but as a child, I watched this movie over and over and over again. In 1995, board games were still a thing, and it was pretty cool to imagine a board game being brought to life. Also, I'm like really into games overall. I'm just a game person. I love having fun playing games together, playing games by myself. I own a Nintendo Switch. I wouldn't consider myself a gamer, but I just love the way games bring people together. It's just super fun. Whatever. <laughs> Anyways, Robin Williams is a treasure. Okay. 
particularly in this movie. I think this movie and maybe Flubber were probably my introductions into Robin Williams and maybe Mrs. Doubtfire. But this is a part of my childhood. And in this movie, he's funny. And then he also has these serious moments. And then he mostly successfully pulls off having a childlike element of a kid who was sucked into a board game in sixth grade. (laughs) But he does a great job in this film. And I'm really saddened about his death. It's really interesting how people we don't know, people that we form these connections to through media, that we feel some attachment to them and like feel sadness about their passing, even though we don't know them personally. And Robin Williams is one of those people for me. Another underrated comedic legend is in this film. David Allen Greer. I don't know if you all know who he is, but he plays Officer Carl Bentley in Jumanji, and you may recognize him from In Living Color. He's a great comedic actor, and he doesn't get enough praise, and he does such a good job at being the comedic relief in this film. They also do a good job of aging him in this film, which I talk about a little bit later. Another reason why I really enjoy this film is that we get to see a young Kirsten Dunst. She's like one of the few child actors who adjusted to acting as an adult (laughs) and hasn't had the normal kind of life getting the best of you as you age in the film industry. So kudos to her being well adjusted. One of the things that I remember vividly as a child is that I would watch Jumanji And then when I got older, Spider-Man came out and she was an adult. And I was like, how does she grow up so fast? (laughs) Like the concept of time was crazy. Seeing her as like a young child in Jumanji. And the next thing I see her in, she's an adult Mary Jane and Spider-Man. And I was like, she grew up so fast. Even though the movies were literally way far apart. I just remember being a kid and not understanding that. It's pretty funny to me. Also... I wasn't a huge fan of the animated Jumanji series, but Jumanji did have an animated series that I would watch occasionally. If I recall correctly, don't hold me to this because I didn't watch it consistently as a child. Peter and Judy would travel into the board game to help Alan each episode. They would be running from Van Pelt and doing missions and whatnot. We also have newer versions of Jumanji featuring Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Kevin Hart, as well as like the actual board game. So I feel like as a franchise, Jumanji is pretty well-rounded and even experienced success when it reemerged with like the new characters and being converted into a video game as opposed to a board game. So the concept is still pretty cool. It still holds up and let's talk about it. I'm excited to share my perspective on this movie. So the movie opens and we see the words Jumanji appear and disappear on the screen in a mystical way. We do a flashback to the year 1869 and we see two young boys who look to be 14 and 12 carrying a securely locked chest and burying it in a deep hole. The boys who are named Caleb and Benjamin are burying the chest which contains the Jumanji board game in an effort to protect the world from it. We can probably presume that they started and finished the Jumanji game and are hoping that by burying it, the horrors of the game will stay hidden. I did not recall this scene at all. (laughs) I was like, what is this? I didn't realize the scene was in the movie. And then I was like, board games in 1869. So I did like a quick little wiki search because I was intrigued by the idea of like 19th century board games. Come to find out, 
The game of life was invented in 1860. Now I've played life. There was like a SpongeBob version of life that I've also played. I actually really enjoyed that game because again, I really enjoy having fun with normal things and life literally gives you like children and grandchildren in the game. It's so cute. It's cute. Okay. Anyway, the fact that that game was invented in 18 freaking 60, that's like over 150 years ago. It's kind of mind boggling that board games are that old. I don't know why. It's crazy. But while the boys were burying the chest that contained Jumanji, you could hear the rhythmic thumping of the drums. A suggestion basically that the game is low key alive. Next up, it is 1969, a hundred years later in a town called Brantford, New Hampshire. And the town is a cute little town. It looks like it's thriving. We meet a young boy named Alan who's played by Adam Hanbird. And we see the people in the town know Alan's name. The officers greet him. Other people say hi to him. And when he passes through the local park on his bicycle, there's a statue of a general named Angus Parrish. So this suggests that the Parrish family is kind of a big deal in the town of Brantford, New Hampshire. And it explains why so many people people know Alan because he comes from a prestigious family. I totally missed that as a child. <laughs> that went over my head. While he's on his bicycle going through the park, five bullies spot Alan and chase him on their bicycles. Alan rides his bicycle really quickly to the Paris Shoe Company, which is the company that his dad owns where they make shoes. And he narrowly escapes the bullies. And he really doesn't because they wait for him. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we're at the shoe factory. Alan walks up to a man named Carl, played by David Alan Greer, who's wearing a decent late 60s curly wig. Like that wig is actually, like I said, low-key decent. Carl says he's been working on a project for a year developing a shoe. It's a sneaker. And he has a meeting with Alan's dad to discuss it. Carl believes that he basically has the best next thing in shoes and that it will take the company to higher heights. Carl clearly has ambitions and talents and is looking to come up in the world. And Carl is like, if I can get Wilt Chamberlain to wear these, there can be one in every closet. And if they can get an athlete to wear their shoes, it could be a big cash cow for the company and take them to higher heights. So Alan is holding the sneaker and for 1995, the sneaker is actually pretty cute. And he puts it down on a conveyor belt when his father calls to him. His father, Sam Parrish, played by Jonathan Hyde, has this low, booming, stern voice, and he scolds Alan for coming to the dangerous factory. Alan asks for a ride home, and Sam rightfully surmises that his son is running from his repeat bully, Billy Jessup. His father tells him, you need to face your fears as his bullies start destroying his bike outside of the factory. Also, the conveyor belt gets turned on, and now a year's worth of Carl's work is slowly on its way to being demolished. As Alan leaves the factory, something gets stuck in the machine, and it starts smoking, and Alan realizes that it was his mistake. The machine is damaged and Carl's invention is destroyed. But Alan leaves without taking credit for it, forcing Carl to take the blame. That comes back later. But Alan is coming across as like a little coward. He's running from his bullies. He's not owning up and taking responsibility for things that he's done wrong. That's the way he's <laughs> coming across. And his dad has basically scolded him 
for being a little coward. So Alan gets ready to leave, but the five bullies intercept him. Come to find out Billy is upset with Alan for hanging out with his girlfriend. So the bullies beat him up and he goes home with a bloody lip, a black eye, and he has to walk home because they steal his bike. Mind you, there are adults nearby. There's construction going on like right across the way from Paris Shoe Company. And it's like, okay, y'all see five boys jumping a child and you keep doing construction and don't jump in. I don't know if this is a 1969 situation, like boys will be boys, I don't know. But if I saw a child getting jumped, I would at least step in, like, come on now. So later that night, Sam and Carol, the mom and dad are getting ready for some kind of event where Sam has to make a speech. They're dressed up really fancy. They're getting ready to head out. So Carol and Sam go to talk to Alan before they head out. And turns out Sam did not realize that Alan got jumped by five kids. Sam claims that he would have never sent his son home on his own if he knew how many kids were out there. (laughs) Then in the weirdest twist of events, Sam tells Alan that he's proud of him for facing the bullies even though he was outnumbered. And since he took getting jumped like a man, they have decided that he's ready to go to the Cliffside School for Boys. Apparently, it's a boarding school where all his male relatives have attended since the 1700s. Even the main dorm is named after the parishes. Again, I do not remember this family having so much prestige from when I was a kid. That went totally over my head. But it appears that getting jumped by five boys was just the rite of passage he needed to be granted permission to go to this boys boarding school and live separately from his parents. Alan is not happy about this. It's almost like he's never heard of this school before. (laughs) And it's like, okay, around this time, Alan is about in the sixth grade. And if you're a parish and all of your male relatives went to this school, why is this kind of your first time being exposed to this? Did your dad not mention it before? His dad seems really proud of being a parish and like all of the traditions that their family holds. And is kind of disappointed in Alan for not leaning into those traditions. But I feel surprised that Alan is so shocked and thrown off by this offer or invitation to go to this school. Like, why doesn't he know about this already? But whatever. Alan, because he doesn't know much about this school, didn't realize that he would be separated from his parents. And he knows that if he's getting bullied now for being a parish in the town of Brantford, just wait until he goes to a school where there's a building named after him. And I feel like this is like a bit of an odd twist. Typically, we see like privileged legacy children from prestigious families being portrayed as like untouchable bad boys with no real concept of consequences that just get away with things however they want. They are typically very popular, have a lot of friends or whatever. In this movie, the rich, awkward kid is getting beat up by five kids at a time. He's getting bullied all the time and coming home with a fat lip. Y'all let me know if there are any other TV shows or movies that you can think of where the rich kid is being treated poorly. (laughs) It just feels weird to me. So Alan basically tells his dad, if you love the school so much, then you should live there, which I thought was very funny. And Alan says, maybe I don't want to be a parish. And his father, who is so, you know, proud of being a parish, gets really upset by that. And you can just tell that Sam is so proud of his white privilege. Uh, (laughs) 
And he feels really shocked that his child is not leaning into that privilege as well. So his father yells at Carol for her to get her coat so they can head out. And Sam and Alan proceed to go into like this yelling match where they both say things that they kind of regret. Alan says, I guess I'm not ready to go to boarding school. And Sam says, we're taking you next Sunday and I don't want to hear another word about it. And Alan is like, don't worry about that because I'm never talking to you again. And then Sam and Carol leave. And that really is like the last thing he says to his father. So real quick, I want to ask about boarding schools. Y'all, what is the deal with boarding schools? I do not have children. They may be on the horizon, but as of right now, there are no children on the way in this household. And I have a hard time wrapping my mind around spending tens of thousands of dollars to send my kid off to be fully immersed and basically raised in a program where I don't get to see them on a regular basis. Again, Alan is about 13, which is like sixth grade-ish. So he would basically spend at least four years primarily being raised by teachers. He's going to be taught how to think and he's going to not have consistent contact or guidance from his parents. Like WTF, like I don't understand boarding schools. I don't want to sound judgy because my understanding is that they have a really good educational program. I even worked at a school that provided boarding for international students and it was hella expensive. And I just can't imagine being a parent and sending my child off (laughs) to be away from me. Like your children still need you to raise them and to guide them. Like what the heck? Who's instilling good values in them? I don't know. I don't know if any of you all went to boarding school. Maybe tell me about it. Tell me about your experience. I just really cannot wrap my head around handing off your kids to an institution. It just sounds crazy to me. Let me know if you went to boarding school and what your experience was like. How does it impact your relationship with your family, with your siblings, with your parents? I don't know. Let's get back on track. Okay. Sam is coming across as a harsh man. He's even a little harsh to his wife. Mind you, it's 1969, so that tracks. But Alan proceeds to pack a bag, including like food, some cash and clothes. And before he leaves the house, because he's obviously planning to run away, he even packs a Jumanji. But just as he's about to run away, a girl knocks on his door. This girl is Sarah Whittle, and she's played by Laura Bell Bundy. It's Billy's girlfriend returning Alan's bike. So this is the girl that Alan basically got beat up over. Alan says that he was going to get his bike from Billy. And I'm like, you lying. (laughs) And that she didn't have to return it. But he was like, look, I ain't got time for this. I'm leaving. And then the Jumanji drum track comes on again and it startles the girl. So he realizes that even though like the construction guys didn't hear the drums from Jumanji, Sarah hears them along with him. We'll talk a little bit about the drums later. It's actually a little creepy. (laughs) But at this time, the girl Sarah is taller than him. That tracks for about middle school. And he shows her the game, which is a big mistake. When he tries to move the pieces on the board, he realizes that they're stuck to the board and they think it's probably just a magnet or something. And then he reads half of the instructions. Jumanji. A game for those who seek to find a way to leave their world behind. You roll the dice to move your token. Doubles gets another turn. The first player to reach the end wins. 
So the girl, Sarah, picks up the dice and says she stopped playing board games years ago. And then she kind of haphazardly drops the dice on the board to leave. And that actually counts as her first turn. So Alan calls her back over to watch her white gang piece move on the board on its own. Mind you, this is 1969. I don't know that they had technology like this to speak of back in 1969, which would have freaked me out. And it does freak the kids out. And so Sarah is intrigued, right? Because even though she stopped playing board games a long time ago, this is new technology, like she's into it. And so in the center of the board, there's a small circular screen that provides a riddle. At night they fly, you better run. These winged things are not much fun. And then bats make noises inside the fireplace. And Sarah starts freaking out and she's like, we need to put this game away. Alan picks up the dice and gets ready to put the game away. But then he gets startled by the grandfather clock striking 8 p.m. and suddenly rolls the dice on accident, making it his turn. So he and Sarah are afraid that the game has a mind of its own. And it basically does. His riddle appears and it reads, in the jungle, you must wait until the dice read five or eight. And then in pretty bad CGI fashion, Alan gets sucked into the game, fingers first. <laughs> Sarah and Alan freak the F out and rightfully so. Like Alan is getting sucked into the game like a swirly down the drain, okay? And right as he's getting sucked into the game and Sarah is freaking the F out, bats with like 4C fur fly out of the fireplace and attack her. And she leaves the house screaming in terror. These bats are actually kind of big. And I will say these bats are actually pretty good as far as like the effects or like the costuming, whatever you want to call them. So now time advances and it's 26 years later. The old parish house where Alan lived is old and hasn't been taken care of. But we hear a lady say that a bed and breakfast is exactly what this town needs. Enter Aunt Nora, who's played by B.B. Newworth and Judy, a young Kirsten Dunst and Peter. Bradley Pierce. We find out that Nora is the sister of Judy and Peter's dad. Judy and Peter's parents died last winter and now Aunt Nora is their guardian. So we find out that Peter has been nonverbal since their parents died. And then Judy weaves this lie about how her parents were jet setters who never told the kids they loved them. And then she lies about how they died to the realtor. It's clearly a joke to her, but it shows the difference between how each child is handling the trauma of losing both their parents. And so Judy does so by weaving lies and making up tales and kind of taking everything as a joke. Whereas Peter doesn't talk to anyone besides Judy. So it just shows that they're handling their grief in two different ways. Come to find out, the parents actually died in a car crash in Canada and were very devoted parents. But the kids get a chance to explore the house and they find that there's one room that's locked and Nora does not have the key. It appears to be Alan's old room. Nora then tells Peter to take his luggage to the attic and while he's there, he sees a leftover bat from 26 years ago and does what I think is an iconic scream. It's a very weird like, ah. <laughs> I can't do it. But it's not just like a, ah, it's like, ah. 
It's hard. I feel like the scream is iconic and it is very unique to him. But Nora goes to check in the attic and actually hears the bat. And so I was a little curious and I actually looked it up to see how long bats live because that bat was at least 26 years old. According to my Google search, bats live 10 to 20 years on average in the wild, but there are records of bats living as long as 40 years. So maybe it's not super far-fetched that a bat survived that long. Or is it like a magical Jumanji bat that will live forever until the game is over. I don't know. We never see any animals actually get harmed in this movie. So I don't know if someone actually hunted all of these animals that they would actually pass away and stop wreaking havoc. Like, are these magic Jumanji animals that can't die? I don't know. But anyways, they call an exterminator and he doesn't see any droppings. And it's like, okay, if that bat was in there for 26 years, there would be some poop. So that helps me to understand <laughs> that these are magical Jumanji animals. They don't leave poop everywhere. And even later in the movie, some of the animals eat things. But it's like, if they're eating, why aren't they pooping? I don't know. That's a little bit of a loophole, but it's not very important to me. Peter identified the bat as an African bat and the exterminator mentioned that a young girl claims to have seen similar bats like that back in the 60s. Then the exterminator says, you ain't got to worry about bats in this house. What you need to be worried about is the history and bad juju in this house. He claims that Alan Parrish was murdered in the house and that he believes Sam Parrish, Alan's father, did it. He said that the house is so big that he basically could have hidden the body anywhere. And my question is, why is this grown man scaring the these children about the house they're going to be living in. I don't like that. Like, read the room. These are children. <laughs> don't tell them the haunted history about the house they just moved into. So next up, we get a super quick unrealistically quick montage of Aunt Nora restoring the house to its old 1969 glory. The house actually came with the furniture, so it still has that 1969 feel, which is actually kind of neat. Like I wouldn't be mad about staying there as a bed and breakfast, but like I said, the montage is super quick and kind of unbelievable. It basically shows us that in a single day, the place went from having 26 years of wear and tear to being in really great shape with just like old furniture, old rustic vintage furniture. Okay. And she didn't have no helpers. Nobody came to help clean, repair nothing, nothing. Thing. And I'm like, okay, we're just skipping over this. Okay, cool, I guess. So it's dinner time. We find out that Aunt Nora has to talk to the principal on the kid's first day. They don't say which kid it is. We don't know which kid got in trouble or if both of them got in trouble. But we know it's normal to see behavioral issues in kids with trauma, like losing both of your parents. So Judy gets sent to her room early for telling a story about Alan Parrish being murdered, chopped up and hidden in the walls of the house. Turns out that the aunt didn't know the folklore about why she got such a great deal on this big mega house, which girl, you need to do some due diligence. Okay, you need to, <laughs> you need to do a little better about that. So it's bedtime and Judy wakes up because she hears the Jumanji drums and she goes into Peter's room to see if he heard it. So right before she walked into the room, Peter had just gotten through looking at a picture of his parents longingly. And so Peter actually speaks for the first time in the film and we realize that he's nonverbal with everyone else besides his sister Judy. And so he asks Judy if she misses their parents and she says no. I don't know how old they are. I would say Peter is probably 10-ish and Judy is maybe 12. So yeah, Judy, 
it's just one of those kids that's having a really hard time and doesn't want to admit feeling saddened or upset by her parents not being alive anymore. But they warn each other that their coping mechanisms for Judy that's lying and making up stories all the time, and for Peter that's being nonverbal, they warn each other that these types of coping mechanisms will land them both in therapy. And then they lay down and they hear the drums again. So that's a little freaky. But it's the next day, and it's time for school, and the drums distract them from listening to their aunt. In this scene, their aunt actually comes across as pretty caring. She offers to stay with them until the school bus arrives or to drop them off herself before she heads to the permit office to make sure that she can run a business in the house. They convince the aunt to leave, and Judy knows that Peter can hear the drums even though he claims that he couldn't hear them before. This is where I pause to say that I'm low-key sensing that Jumanji is preying on children because adults can never hear the drums, and I'm actually a little weirded out by this. The drums start again, and they head up to the attic to find where the noise is coming from. Y'all, this is the biggest attic I've ever seen in my life, and I love it. I need this kind of storage, okay? <laughs> I love having storage and the house that we have now is lovely and wonderful and we enjoy it, but it's lacking on the storage y'all. So the next house I get, I need to have mega storage like this attic, okay? But the drums intensify once they're up in the attic and they discover the Jumanji board game. They are excited instead of scared. This game literally is calling to you all and you know it didn't call to your auntie and y'all are excited to play this game. You're gonna skip school to play a game that called to you. I don't think so, <laughs> personally, <laughs> not me. <laughs> Peter sees that the pieces that Sarah and Alan used are still stuck to the board in their previous positions and he's unable to remove them. Judy reads the instructions while Peter grabs two additional game pieces that magically make their way onto the board. They suspect it's microchips. By this time, which would be 1995, they are like, hey, you know, the technology has evolved a little bit. Maybe it's just like a fancy board game. Okay. So Judy rolls a six and takes her turn and the riddle on the little screen in the middle of the board reads, a tiny bite can make you itch, make you sneeze, make you twitch. And then the biggest mosquitoes known to man come out of nowhere. And Judy uses a racket to swipe one through the window and the hole in the window allows the other mosquitoes to escape. And I'm like, WTH? Can you imagine being in New Hampshire and getting bit by a mosquito that big? I feel like the... I don't know what the little snout thing on the mosquito is actually so big that it might actually impale someone like completely go through like their arm or something. That's like freaking nuts. Y'all, I don't like mosquitoes, but giant ones is actually a little freaking. And then Peter rolls the dice just as Judy is like, don't. And then he gets snake eyes. And so the riddle reads, this will not be an easy mission. Monkey slow the expedition. And then tons of noise comes from the kitchen. And then Judy and Peter go downstairs to find the worst CGI monkeys in the world acting a fool and tearing up the kitchen. These monkeys are actually very dangerous and mischievous, okay? They throw knives with pretty good accuracy. They're tearing stuff up. They're going through the refrigerator, throwing stuff all over the place. And now, Judy and Peter are kind of putting two and two together. The mosquitoes and the monkeys came from the gang. So they head back to the attic where Judy realizes that she did not finish reading the instructions. So the second half of the instructions read, adventurers beware, do not begin unless you intend to finish. The exciting consequences of the game will vanish only when a player has reached Jumanji and called out its name. 
So while Judy is reading the second half of the instructions that she should have read in the first place, they hear the front door slam and the monkeys have actually escaped and are low-key getting information to terrorize the city. So they decide to finish the game so that everything can go away and Aunt Nora won't kill them for tearing up the house, okay? <laughs> so Peter rolled doubles, so he has to roll again and he rolls a five. The riddle reads, his fangs are sharp, he likes your taste, your party better move post haste. Next we see in a deliciously creepy scene, I actually kind of like how this happens. The lion is on a piano in the attic and it's pretty freaky and he comes out of the shadows. In 2023, the lion in the attic looks like a big puppet. So it's not as scary as I remember it. But the freaky part about seeing the lion's shadow and seeing him like on the piano is actually still kind of holds up for me. But once the lion is moving, he's like a CGI lion and his agility when he's moving is freaky. But when you see him as a puppet, you're like, okay, now <laughs> it's not as freaky anymore. So the lion chases them down the stairs and then a grown up Alan Parrish played by Robin Williams appears in jungle clothing with a knife and he tricks the lion into going into a bedroom. And then the lion pretends that he's not strong enough to get through the bedroom door. What was that even about? Was the lion just tired and like over it? I don't understand. So Alan is back y'all. Alan finds the kids hiding in a linen closet and then he busts into his old room and smiles. He sees his old bike and he even sees the t-shirt that he bled on from his last night on earth before he was sucked into Jumanji. Everything is as he left it. It's covered in cobwebs and dust and we see that he even appears to have half of his prescription glasses from his childhood which he uses as a monocle to look at a picture of his mom and dad. Now I'm going to pause right here. Okay this is the second film where I've had to bring this up and it bothers me a little bit it's annoying to me so the picture of his parents that he's looking at longingly is actually a picture of them from the night they left to go to that little banquet or whatever they're wearing the same clothes from that night and it does not make sense to me that alan's old room would have a picture of his parents from the night he disappeared why don't filmmakers just make sure to put the actors in a different outfit to take a different picture at a different time? Why are there pictures of events that happen in the movie in the movie? <laughs> I also brought this up on Coming to America. When Prince Akeem and Lisa go to the museum, there's a picture of Prince Akeem and his parents, the king and queen on the museum wall. And that picture is of them at the engagement party, which happened earlier in the movie and it's like just put them in different clothes and take pictures like it doesn't make sense <laughs> I guess it's a little bit of a like a pet peeve for me but whatever the kids approach Alan and he asks if someone rolled a five or an eight. And when Peter kind of confesses, Alan picks Peter up and hugs him and apologizes for scaring him and runs through the house like a crazy man looking for his parents. He thinks Judy and Peter are his siblings but then they kind of figure out that he's Alan Parrish and they tell him that the house was abandoned and everyone thought he was dead. So when he hears this news, he runs out of the house and almost gets hit by Officer Carl Bentley. Do y'all remember Carl with the sneaker invention? He's now a police officer. So I'm going to give this movie credit. It's really hard to find a movie where someone appropriately ages 
In this movie, there's a distinct difference between young Carl and old Carl, despite the fact that the same actor, David Alan Greer, plays both roles. I feel like they did a really good job of aging David Alan Greer. He looked way younger when he was working in the shoe factory. And then 26 years later, they add some gray. He looks a little bit older. You can tell that he is older and I can appreciate that. So Alan hops on the hood of the car to avoid getting hit and Officer Carl basically pulls him over over and ask for ID after telling him it's now 1995. And so Robin Williams is realizing 26 years have passed and that's freaking crazy. Robin Williams has the hairiest legs that I have ever seen. <laughs> but the kids come out to get him and Judy forms some quick lies to try to get him out of trouble. When he says he was in Jumanji, She's like, that's in Indonesia. And he was in a Peace Corps. When he starts saying weird things that don't make sense, she says, this is our uncle who suffered a brain injury recently. And then while Carl is interrogating the kids, a pair of monkeys come and steal Carl's police car. So Carl hilariously runs after them. So this allows Alan to run in the other direction to find his parents. And while he's running through the town, the once thriving Brantford, New Hampshire is dilapidated with tons of homeless people, stores that have gone out of business. The only business that we see that's actually still operational sells adult films. So <laughs> Alan does not recognize this time as his home. And my initial thought is like, why did Aunt Nora think this would be a great town for a bed and breakfast? Like, there's nothing here. <laughs> There's nothing worth seeing. Alan runs to the Paris shoe company to find it also dilapidated and abandoned. So Judy and Peter follow him and Alan sees an old man in his father's office, but come to find out it's just an old squatter using it for, you know, shelter. And so the old man tells him that the company folded just like everything else in the town. He says that when Alan ran away, Sam put all his time and money trying to find him. Then he stopped coming to work and he quit caring from the grief and the business folded and took the rest of the local economy of Brantford, New Hampshire with it. So the old man gives Alan a pair of clothes to wear and kind of sends him on this way. I think it's kind of interesting that in this movie, there are these random characters that they use to advance the story or give us some background. For instance, we got the realtor where we learn about what happened to Judy and Peter's parents. We got the exterminator where we learn about what happened or what the rumor is about what happened to Alan Parrish. And now we have this old homeless man who's telling us about what happened to the business and the town economy. So I think it's just interesting that they use these small roles to help carry the story from point A to point B. But the man basically tells Alan that his parents are at the cemetery. Sam died in May of 1991 and Carol died in August of that same year. Sam was 69 and Carol was 60. So Alan goes to their gravestone and he briefly grieves the loss of his parents. And Judy's like, we're orphans too. And she begins to tell a lie about how her parents passed because she she's so used to it. And Peter has to actually stop her and be like, you need to get out of this cycle of lying about what's happening to our parents and actually show some sympathy for a man who's been trapped in a board game for 26 years. <laughs> Y'all, I don't remember Kirsten Dunst's character being a compulsive little liar. I don't recall that. And it was a bit of a shock to me when I was rewatching this. But Peter stops her from messing up and lying again. And he tries to have a tender moment with Alan. And Alan leaves his turtle shell hat on their headstone. And 
It's actually like a little bit of a sad scene. Judy tries to convince Alan to finish the game with them while they're on their way back to the house. But he's like, screw that. He just found out his parents are dead. He's trying to process the fact that he's been gone for 26 years. Girl, I don't need to be worried about no game, okay? Then while they're on their way back to the house, they witness an ambulance hit a car. And the person in the car has a weird bite that's apparently from one of those giant mosquitoes that they released into the wild. She has like a big mark on her forehead and the paramedics say that over 50 people have been bitten this way. 50 people. The lady in the car actually happens to be the realtor that sold Aunt Nora the house. So Alan hears something. And this is the first time we see that Alan has these increased senses and instincts because he's been trapped inside of Jumanji for years. And so he instructs them to get inside the realtor's car. And it's actually a soft top convertible. Alan wants to know what came out of the game before him. And then the mosquitoes show up and it tries to poke through the soft top and the glass to bite them. And so they actually need to drive away. And Alan, who was like 13 when he was sucked into Jumanji, does not know how to drive. And so they buckle up and he accidentally releases the convertible roof because he's just pressing buttons. And Peter has to shift the gears to make sure that they escape. So they do escape. They do drive away. And interestingly enough, that's not the last time that Alan drives in this movie. It's kind of weird. So they're back at the house and Alan is in the attic and frightened when Judy brings up the game again, like literally shows him the game. And he's like, nah, nah. He basically tells them that this is his house now. And he's so grateful for the indoor plumbing. <laughs> So he spends quite a bit of time taking a shower and cleaning up and this includes shaving for the first time because he was still like a little prepubescent when he got sucked into the game. So it appears that he has never really shaved before. So by this time, he cleans up pretty nice. He looks like the Robin Williams we all know and love. And Judy sees how many times he cut himself while shaving. And she asks, what happened to you? Did you shave with a piece of glass? And he responds, what happened to you? The Clampets have a yard sale? <laughs> So I had to look up the reference, but the Clampets are actually the Beverly Hillbillies. Like when I realized that I was like, his comeback is actually quite hilarious. Like I don't have a lot of knowledge about the Beverly Hillbillies, but I do think I've watched at least a part of one of their movies, but I did find it pretty funny once I actually realized what he was trying to say. But Alan says that he's going to pick up where he left off and basically like start over as a sixth grader, I guess. But Peter does some reverse psychology by calling Alan scared and saying, we don't need your help. And Alan says, what you all have seen is literally just the beginning. He's like, I've seen crazy stuff that you couldn't even imagine in your nightmares. And you all won't last five minutes without me. And he says he'll watch and like look over them as they play the game, but he's not afraid. And so they sit down to play the game and Judy rolls the dice and it doesn't work because it's actually Sarah's turn, y'all. Alan realizes that the pieces that they used 26 years ago are still in play on the board and they are finishing the game that he started 26 years ago. So he's realizing that he doesn't have an option except to play and that they have to get Sarah Whittle to play the game as well so that they can finish. What happens if someone starts the game and they die? What if Sarah passed away? Would they just never be able to finish the game? I just, I don't understand. I don't know. Interesting twist. 
but they go to Sarah's old house. It's only slightly creepy. I actually like the house that she lives in. It has like a huge porch and there's a sign on the door that says Madam Serena who does psychic readings. So Alan gets down on himself and he says Sarah probably doesn't live here anymore. She probably married Billy Jessup and is living with him in a trailer park, which I thought was very funny. But a woman answers the door and Alan recognizes her as Sarah. And he says, 26 years ago, you played a game with a little boy down the street and he confesses to being that little boy and she passes out. While she's passed out, Alan carries her to his house, which I think is very strange. And when Sarah comes to, she starts freaking out and calling her therapist because this event in her childhood caused her to have to go to over 2000 hours of therapy. And she was finally becoming convinced that she had basically made up the whole situation about him being sucked into a board game. And when he brings out the game, she starts to freak out. And she's like, your dad killed you and he cut you up in a bunch of little pieces and he hid your body all across the house. And Alan says, my father could barely hug me, let alone cut me into a million pieces. <laughs> and he tries to convince her to finish the game and he gives her the dice. And she's just so reluctant because she spent 26 years being called crazy and weird and having to go to therapy and being gaslit about this event, which sounds impossible, but actually happened to her. And now she's realizing that that it actually really did happen to her and she's having a hard time adjusting and I don't blame her, okay? But Alan ends up tricking her into rolling the dice and a riddle pops up in the middle of the board and it says, they grow much faster than bamboo, take care or they'll come after you. The next thing you know, these green pooped colored vines grow all over the room and Peter gets snatched up by a vine with a big yellow carnivorous plant attached. It's very little shop of horrors, okay? And Alan cuts him loose with like a sword from his great grandfather or something and the big yellow plant retreats. We also learned that the purple when shoot poisonous barbs, which comes back later, immediately Alan and Sarah become guardians of the children because <laughs> Sarah was really fighting to make sure that Peter didn't get eaten by this weird plant. So next up, we see Carl again. Carl finds his police car and decides to check into a suspicious character, aka Alan, over at the old parish place. I feel like his priorities are a little out of order. The dispatcher is talking about basically there's animal chaos all over the city and he's still trying to connect with Alan. And it's like, get your ish together. There are more pressing issues, okay? But Alan closes up the room where the vines grew and they move on to the study. They keep having to get Sarah in a space to continue the game. She's still freaking out at this point and this includes threatening her so <laughs> Alan low-key kind of threatens her with the sword <laughs> so Alan and Sarah get into like this petty middle school argument about which of them suffered more from Jumanji Alan was alone and learning to survive in a dangerous jungle Sarah was alone and outcast psychologically evaluated and gaslit into believing that what she went through wasn't real I feel like they each suffered in their own way, but Alan was way worse. The fact that he survived at all in Jumanji really is a miracle, especially considered the type of kid he was. He wasn't very brave. So the fact that he was alive in 26 years is actually like a miracle. But Judy manages to get them back on track and get them to stop arguing. And they all make a vow to keep playing the game until it's done. So it's Alan's turn. 
And when he rolls, the riddle reads, a hunter from the darkest wild makes you feel just like a child. Alan is shaking in fear as he reads it. And then he says the name Van Pelt. Then a man shoots an old fashioned gun and comes out in these super old hunting digs and goes after Alan. So on top of being in a jungle environment where he was trapped in the game with very dangerous animals and plants, he was also being hunted by a man named Van Pelt, who was also played by Jonathan Hyde. Now, until I rewatched this movie as an adult about 10 years back, I did not realize or recognize that the actor who portrayed Alan's father also portrayed Van Pelt. It was like the game was playing upon Alan's worst fear, which is very predatory. So one of the things that I learned about in my research on this movie was that Roger Ebert criticized the film for being marketed as a family film while being far too scary for children. And even Robin Williams wouldn't let his children watch it. The more and more I'm watching this movie as an adult, the more I'm thinking that this could actually be labeled as like light horror for children. There's scary, mischievous animals and plants. It's a board game that calls to and kind of preys upon children. The board game also includes a homicidal maniac that takes the form of the main character's father. And y'all, this movie is low key kind of like horror-y. I didn't find this movie scary as a child. I think a lot of this stuff kind of went over my head. But as an adult, I could see what Roger Ebert was talking about. Now, with the introduction of Van Pelt into this movie, I want to say something that people may not agree with or even really understand. When Jonathan Hyde is portraying Van Pelt and Jumanji, the makeup and facial hair makes him look eerily similar to Cat Williams. <laughs> the comedian Cat Williams, y'all. When I watched this as an adult, I was like, this man looks like Cat Williams. It's so funny to me. And I feel like people may not agree with me, but just take a look at him. <laughs> take a look at him and see <laughs> if you can see what I'm saying. Like, he looks like Cat Williams. It's just freaking hilarious. They look just alike, okay? So like I said, Van Pelt shoots from out of nowhere and he chases Alan onto the street. So Officer Call shows up to see Van Pelt shooting at Alan. And when the officer confronts Van Pelt, an active shooter, Van Pelt wastes his bullet shooting up the officer's car and the street lamp overhead. Carl ends up driving away looking for the culprit, but Alan sneaks back into the house through a window. So Peter opens his mouth to ask if Van Pelt was the reason that Alan didn't want to play the game again. And now Sarah is on Alan's case because of how hard he's been trying to convince her to play when he didn't want to play in the first place. So they argue like children. <laughs> Alan brings up Billy. Sarah's like, who? <laughs> Sarah spouts off some Madam Serena talking out BS when she tries to suggest that he like have a one-on-one -on -one chat with Van Pelt so that he's not trying to murder him or whatever. But he calls her crazy and she's like, don't ever call me crazy. Judy and Peter are sick of it and Judy rolls while they argue. She rolls a six and the riddle reads, don't be fooled, it isn't thunder, staying put would be a blunder. So the house starts to shake and a stampede of African animals breaks through the library wall. And so Alan grabs the game at the last minute and does like this iconic scream. And then they go off into a room to avoid being run over by the rhinos, elephant, zebra, and large birds. They kind of look like pelicans. I'm not really sure what kind of birds they are. But one of the large CGI pelican birds flies off with the game. And Alan is really upset and blames Peter for not grabbing the game in time before the bird could fly away with it. And so Sarah tells Peter, don't take it to heart. He's a Libra. And I'm like, I'm a Libra. What does that even mean? <laughs> 
Y'all, so Sarah is supposed to be like a psychic, intuitive person. And I feel like at this point in the story, she loses all of that quirkiness about her. Her mentioning that he was a Libra is almost the last time that she kind of still embodies the quirky, earthy, psychic kind of situation. So they don't really carry that theme through the whole movie, which is kind of annoying. But Alan chases the bird knowing that it's going to go to find water. And so the phone rings at the house and Judy answers with an accent to avoid being held accountable by Aunt Nora. And so the stampede, unfortunately, has broken through the front door of the house and made it so that the doo-doo brown vines that were kind of concentrated in that one room are no longer contained in that room. And they're spreading all over the house as the gang leaves to go and find the gang. So next up, we see Van Pelt at a gun store. Van Pelt avoids the paperwork and waiting period for a new gun by pulling out a bunch of gold coins. And so the gun shop owner asked if he's a postal worker, which is a very 90s joke. (laughs) And I don't even know if that's still appropriate anymore. (laughs) Anyways. The rest of the gang meet up with Alan at the creek where he's trying to get the game from that huge bird. So he catches a fish to bribe the bird and the bird kicks the game into the stream and Peter runs off to intercept it. So Peter uses a log that's kind of hanging over the creek to hang upside down and grab the game before it is swept away forever. So Alan appears to be very happy and impressed with Peter, but then he kind of loses his enthusiasm quickly, a little bit without explanation. And so Van Pelt returns to the house with his new gun to see that the gang isn't there anymore. Sarah and Judy are happy that Peter is okay and they're proud that he retrieved the game and they're like, oh, what you did was so cool. But then Alan gives this terse kind of nice work and takes the game and he's like, let's go. He doesn't appear to want to praise Peter the same way that he was never really praised by his father. It's interesting how we can become our parents without really realizing it. So on their walk home, they're approached by Officer Carl. And Carl is like, every time there's trouble, I see you, Alan. I'm taking you in for questioning. So when Carl is arresting Alan, Van Pelt tries to snipe Alan from the woods. And so Alan realizes this and goes with the officer willingly so he doesn't get murdered in front of the kids. (laughs) So they try to say, like, Alan is Sarah's fiance. And like, would you not do this right now? And once again, Officer Carl has his priorities mixed up. He's taking Alan to the police station and leaving a woman and two kids to walk home on the side of the road. Where are your priorities, okay? But while Alan is trying to convince them to finish the game a little later, little Peter decides to go off and try to take his turn. So Sarah and Judy are talking as if they can't finish the game without Alan. And I'm like, do they all have to be together to finish the game? But then I remembered that Alan is actually the Jumanji expert and he really is the only way that they would survive whatever came out of the game next. So as the officer drives away with Alan in the back seat, Peter calls out to Judy. He says Judy a bunch of times and it's usually pretty whiny in this movie. Judy! (laughs) Peter was only 10 spaces away from ending the game. So he tried to drop the dice so that he would get a 12 and like in the game. So the little screen on the board reads, a law of Jumanji having been broken, you will slip back even more than your token. So Peter ends up turning into a monkey child for trying to cheat. So there are consequences in this game. Very strange, but I guess it's appropriate. Peter didn't really see it as cheating, but it definitely was. 
So next up, we see Monkey's looting an electronics store. Carl is hearing about all the crazy stuff happening on the dispatcher radio. And he asks Alan what he knows about what's going on. Alan also knows that the officer's first name is Carl, despite his name tag only listing C as his first initial. And we find out that Parrish fired Carl and Carl had something that could have turned the whole town around. So it seems like the town was really dependent on that shoe factory. So Alan apologizes to Carl and confesses to being Alan Parrish. And Carl stops the car in its tracks because he's just very shocked because Alan Parrish disappeared 26 years ago. So next up, we see Sarah with the kids. Peter is basically a full-on monkey and it looks like they were picked up from the side of the road and delivered back into town. And so the town is in chaos. There's looting, destruction. There's monkeys riding motorcycles. And Sarah asks Judy if she saw the monkeys on the motorcycle. And Judy is like, yeah. And then Sarah says, good girl. And it's funny. Bonnie Hunt is funny in this movie. Like, I love how even after she knows for sure that what she saw 26 years ago was, was real, she's still checking in to make sure that she's not seeing things. I thought that was like a really funny part of the movie. So they try to get money from the ATM to bail Alan out, but it's down. And while they're distracted, Van Pelt steals the game from Peter. But then a stampede of people go through the area and things are crazy enough for Peter to grab the game back. Peter's monkey makeup is actually very good. It's some of the best prosthetics that I've seen in a movie. And it actually still really holds up today. It's actually pretty good. So the animal stampede comes through and Peter dashes into a car for cover with Jumanji. But then the car gets crushed. And while Peter is trapped inside of this crushed car, Van Pelt takes the game back and Sarah and Judy have to get him out of the car and they follow him into a store called Sir Save-A-Lot. So they see the game on a counter in the store. And when Sarah goes to grab it, Van Pelt traps her, knowing that Alan will come for her if she's in danger. So he threatens to blow her brains out when she tries to escape. And Peter bites him to distract him and free Sarah. Peter actually is coming in clutch. Throughout this movie, Peter, next to Alan, is like the most useful person. <laughs> He's super useful and we'll see how so later on. So Carl and Alan... We're back, you know, with Carl and Alan in the police car. They're having a conversation and Alan says that he can stop the mayhem, but he needs to be released. So when Carl, you know, against his better judgment, releases Alan out of the handcuffs, Alan actually handcuffs Carl's hand to the car door and throws away the key. He wants to make sure that Carl stays out of his way. But right when Alan is about to abandon Carl on the side of the road, the dispatcher chimes in about a hostage situation as Sir saves a lot with a dude in a pith helmet. And I'm like, oh, that's what it's called. <laughs> that little weird helmet that he wears. But Alan drives the car because Carl's arm is like in the way. He actually handcuffed Carl's right arm. So it would be difficult for Carl to kind of drive that way. So Alan is driving. And I have a problem with this scene because this is only like the second time Alan has driven in his whole life and he's actually doing a decent job of it. And it's like, he should be having more issues, but I guess he just doesn't. But Sarah and the kids are trying to pull a home alone situation with Van Pelt and Sir saves a lot. And so Van Pelt slips on some laundry detergent and Peter, again, for the win, uses a contraption with these gas canisters to fling Van Pelt into a wall. And it's just long enough for them to try to escape for half a second. But then Van Pelt gets up and he shoots a chain that's holding up a bunch of tires and the kids and Sarah fall down after being <laughs> rolled over by the tires. <laughs> 
<laughs> so Van Pelt, we find out, is really only after Alan because he rolled the dice. I guess he means that like he was the one that was trapped in the game. So that's his target. And Van Pelt really isn't interesting in hurting anyone else who's playing the game. Carl and Alan arrive to the store just in time, but the brakes fail and they drive through the store, pushing a huge self of paint right on top of Van Pelt. And next up, we see Aunt Nora. She's driving and she comes across the stampede while listening to all the crazy stuff that's happening on the radio. When she gets out of the car to witness the stampede with the little chunky straggling rhino, while she's out watching the animals go by, a monkey hops into her car and she doesn't notice. So when she drives off, he scares her and she flies off the road. So next up, Alan, Sarah, and the kids head back to the house and Sarah begs Alan to talk to Peter, who is now half monkey. And so Alan has this really kind of tough chat with Peter. We have to remember that both Sarah and Alan have a little bit of arrested development when it comes to human interactions. Of course, Alan more so than Sarah, because Sarah got to grow up and continue to go to school and, you know, do stuff in the real world, whereas Alan was always fighting for his survival and only has the education of like a 13-year-old child. So... <laughs> And mind you, the 13 years of experience that he has was shaped a lot by his father. So he hasn't had a an opportunity to unlearn some of that stuff. So when Peter is upset and crying and making monkey noises, Alan's response is like, you got to keep your chin up. Crying never helped anything. If you have a problem, you face it like a man. And as he says those words, he realizes that he actually sounds a lot like his dad. And he hugs Peter and apologizes for being so cold. But then Peter says, I'm not crying because you were being a butthole. Like, it turns out his tail was bothering him. He now has the tail of a monkey and he needed to make sure it wasn't <laughs> getting too cramped in his pants. So when they get back to the house, they see that the house has been totally transformed into a vine-covered jungle mansion. Carl gets his arm free from the handcuffs back as Sir saves a lot, and he heads back out onto the streets after fixing up his police cruiser a little bit. They don't explain how he replaced the brakes, though. The brakes were not working. And I know Surf Saves a Lot is supposed to be like a Walmart kind of one-stop shop place, but I don't think you can fix the brakes on your car with the things that belong in Sir Saves a Lot. I don't <laughs> That's just a little loophole, okay? We also see that Van Pelt, who was buried under those paint cans, is actually coming too. So when Carl is heading over to the old parish place, we see that the dispatch center was taken over by monkeys and he is stopped by Aunt Nora on the side of the road when she asked for a ride. So suddenly... A vine comes out of the forest, much to the horror of Nora and Carl, and it takes the car and crumples it up. Y'all, this scene is so funny to me. Nora and Carl are, of course, very shocked and surprised, but Carl is the star of this scene. His facial expressions and his screams are hilarious and are very in line with what I would probably do if something <laughs> like that happened to me. I feel like David Allen Greer in this movie does well with a lot of the comedic relief, and I just wish he got more credit. But Carl and Nora have to head to the house on foot. So... The rest of the crew, the four players get ready to play and it's Sarah's turn. She rolls and the riddle says every month at the quarter moon, there'll be a monsoon in your lagoon. The house becomes its own little ecosystem and it ends up raining indoors and it's torrential rain. And they try to go to higher ground by going up the stairs, but like a flood of water rushes from the stairs and they lose the game again and they are floating in like a huge pool of water. But then a crocodile 
a huge crocodile comes out of nowhere. It's so freaking big. And they go to a table and try to get the kids onto a chandelier so that they are out of danger. Yeah, this is a problem for me. They set a monsoon, but then the crocodiles came out. It's like, you want to give me a natural disaster and very dangerous animals? Come on, Jumanji, you're like cheating now, okay? But anyways... The croc attacks the table and Peter gets thrown off the chandelier into the water. He almost gets eaten by a different crocodile, but Alan's able to pull him up by his tail just in time. But Sarah, on the other hand, is using her legs to not get eaten by a crocodile on the other side of the table. And then Alan wrestles the crocodile to make sure that he doesn't get Sarah. And so Aunt Nora and Carl arrive to the house to hear the screams. And Carl kicks the door, which releases a flood of water that carries Nora, Carl, and the crocodiles out to the street. David Allen Greer's face when he sees the scales on the crocodile is hilarious. But Peter rescues Allen again, again coming in clutch from being swept away with the crocodiles. So Alan and Sarah have a moment because she was like really happy that he saved her. And she's like, well, you rested an alligator for me. And she tries to kiss him. But because he has the emotional maturity of a sixth grader, he doesn't realize she wants to kiss him. And instead he corrects her on the genus of the reptile and tells her that it's a crocodile, not an alligator. So they head to the attic to take the next turn. And it's weird because they're like using every freaking room in this house for a roll of the dice. Okay. So Alan makes a joke about Clue. Nobody's really into it. And he rolls a seven and is only a few spaces away from winning the game. The riddle reads, beware the ground on which you stand. The floor is quicker than the sand. So the attic floor becomes quicksand and Alan begins to fall through the floor. They try to rescue him with long objects, but they keep breaking. <laughs> So Judy takes the next move to see if she can end the game and she rolls and it says there's a lesson you will learn sometimes you must go back a turn. This was pretty cryptic and I actually don't really know or understand this riddle. But the floor ends up solidifying just in time for Sarah to use a door of some sort to hold Alan up through the now solidified floor. So now only Alan's face and arms are up through the floorboard and Sarah's arms are actually stuck in the floorboard supporting him. So neither Alan or Sarah can move. And while they're in this position, they have a moment. Y'all, I feel like Bonnie Hunt is doing a better job of showing her interest in Alan. I know that because Alan is supposed to still be like emotionally 13, that he does not have like the type of social skills to read the room or know when someone likes him. But their little love story is not coming together for me. I feel like Robin Williams is not doing a good job at showing mutual interest with Bonnie. It's coming across very one-sided to me, even though we're supposed to consider the fact that he's still like emotionally a sixth grader. But now it's Peter's turn. He rolls a four. And the riddle reads, need a hand while you just wait. We'll help you out. We each have eight. And a bunch of plastic, huge spiders. Y'all, they were wrong for using these spiders. These spiders look so fake. <laughs> they moved in like a weird fashion. They just didn't look real. That mm, Yeah, I'm very creeped out by spiders personally. I actually live in the Pacific Northwest and we actually have a spider season up here. Y'all, spider season is when the weather gets good and the spiders come out and they are every freaking where. They're in your house. They're outside your house. They're on your car. They're every freaking where. It's the worst. But at least spiders are like kind of small and you can smack them or whatever. These spiders were freaking huge. 
Peter gets sent to the woodshed for the axe while Judy uses what looks like an old music stand to keep the spiders away from Alan and Sarah who aren't able to move because they're partially stuck in the floor. So Aunt Nora comes back to the house while all this is going on and she sees that the house is a jungle now and that a man's feet are hanging from the ceiling and this cute little scene happens where Peter tries to use the axe to open the shed but then realizes he has the axe in his hand and then he breaks the fourth wall looking at the camera and then we go back to Aunt Nora who opens a bedroom door to find a lion on the bed and Aunt Nora is just freaking out she's having a hard time Peter comes to her looking like a monkey and she's still freaking out she's like who's this little monkey child talking to me and he locks her in a large linen closet which is for her own good and also I would love a large linen closet y'all I love storage solutions okay <laughs> like I said in my next house I need to make sure I have lots of storage space but Alan wants Sarah to roll the dice by putting it in her mouth. So when Judy goes to grab the game so that Sarah can roll, one of the poisonous flowers comes out from under the floorboards and shoots her in the neck with the poisonous barb. And so Peter screams Judy for like the fifth time in this movie and then chops the flower off with the axe. And so Judy gives him the board game and the dice so that Sarah can roll with her mouth and then she passes out from the poison. Peter is still trying to fight off the spiders with the axe, but he never makes contact with them. I would have loved to see a spider get cut in half. I don't know why we didn't. <laughs> but like I said, none of the animals appear to be hurt or injured in this movie at all. So I don't even know if he was able to cut one of the spiders in half. Would it reanimate? Would it come back together? Would it die? Who knows? The only thing that we see actually kind of die or get injured are the plants. So Sarah rolls the dice with her mouth and the riddle says you're almost there with much at stake. Now the ground begins to quake. So the spiders are about to like really get on them and attack them. But then the ground begins to quake and the spiders retreat and the house splits down the middle. Alan gets released from the floor, but the board game falls too. When I think of an earthquake, I don't think about houses splitting down the middle the way that this house split into two halves, but like whatever. Sarah can't hold on to Alan anymore, but Alan really quickly grabs some vines and does a Tarzan move to avoid the lion to grab the fallen Jumanji board and swing through the glass doors into the living room. So he picks up the dice and guess who shows up? Cat Williams. <laughs> AKA Van Pelt. Van Pelt is there covered in paint and he orders Alan to drop what's in his hand, which is the dice. Now, one of the dice rolls a one and lands on the board, but the other dice falls between the cracks of the broken floorboards and rolls away. So Van Pelt orders Alan to start running, but Alan's like, no. He actually decides to take his father's advice and face his bully. And so Van Pelt is like, well, now that I've got you, are there any last words now that you're finally acting like a man? And the second dice finishes rolling and it's enough of a roll to finish the game. And so Alan looks at the board to see that he won and he says Jumanji. And so Sarah runs in front of Alan to shield him from Van Pelt's bullet. But right then the bullet and everything else gets sucked into the game before the bullet can make contact. And so all of the animals and plants and everything and even Van Pelt get blended up into like this smoothie spiral or whatever and Van Pelt gets sucked into the game and the game is over with. So while this weird little swirly thing is going on, 
Alan and Sarah are hugging each other. So when everything gets sucked back into the game and they release from each other's embrace, suddenly it's 1969 again. And the young Sarah and Alan stop embracing long enough to realize that they are children again on the same night that changed their lives forever. Sam, the dad, comes back into the house to get his speech notes and Alan embraces him saying that he's so glad he's back. And his dad is like, it's only been five minutes. What are you talking about? But to Alan, he's been gone for 26 years, right? And Alan thought he would never get an opportunity to see him again because he was dead, right? So Alan apologizes to his father and he and his dad have a tender moment. And even the dad apologizes. And his dad is like, if you don't want to go to Cliffside, you don't have to. Okay. Sam sees that Alan has a girl over and he's like, oh, we'll talk later. Father to son. So I can see why Alan changed, right? Alan said something to his father. It was the last thing he said before he disappeared for 26 years. And when he makes it back to earth after 26 years, his father is dead. Like I can understand why he would appreciate and love his father so much after returning from this ordeal. What it doesn't explain is how Sam, the dad, changed so quickly. It's actually a little shocking to see his change of heart because he was like a cold man throughout his run on the movie. And I guess one tender act from his son maybe touched his heart enough to have him change his ways. I don't know. It was a little shocking, but it was actually very sweet. So Alan admits that he's the one that put the shoe on the conveyor belt, which saves Carl Bentley's job. So we see that not only is Alan more grateful for all of the things that he has after his ordeal, but we also see that Alan is brave now and is taking responsibility for his actions. So he learned something. Was it worth 26 years in Jumanji? Probably not, but he (laughs) did learn something. (laughs) So he thinks about Judy and Peter and Sarah reminds him it's 1969. They don't even exist yet. And so Sarah and Alan take some bricks, tie it to the game, and they throw it in the creek. And it appears that Sarah starts to lose her memory of what it's like to be an adult which is interesting, but they don't want to forget Judy and Peter and Sarah ends up kissing him. And the young Alan Parrish seems to be into it, even though the older Alan Parrish didn't really show much romantic interest in older Sarah. Yeah, I don't like that. (laughs) But anyway, next thing we know is 26 years later, it's 1995 and Sarah is pregnant with her hubby Alan's baby. They're hosting a Christmas party at their modernized parish home where Carl is in attendance and Sarah goes to grab Alan. Alan's dressed as Santa and he's on the phone with his dad. It appears that their relationship is much better and his father has actually lived beyond 1991 and he's even coming over for Christmas. So it looks like they have a good relationship. It also looks like Alan inherited the family business and the business is doing really well. They're selling cross trainers, so they're doing good. So I'm assuming that because the business is thriving, that the community is thriving as well. So this alternate universe is turning out way better than the Jumanji one. And so Sarah and Alan greet Jim and Martha, who are the parents of Judy and Peter. So they are excited to see them and they even have gifts for the kids. And Alan asks when Jim can start. So it looks like Alan conspired to hire Jim because he has a marketing background. And so by headhunting Jim and getting him to move to Brantford, New Hampshire, they get to interact and be around the kids, which as a child, I was like, oh, this is super cool. 
as an adult, I'm like, this is a little weird. <laughs> it's a little weird. It's a little bit weird, just a little bit. But when Alan asks Jim when he can start the new job, Jim is like, oh, we want to do like a skiing trip in the Canadian Rockies. And Sarah and Alan both scream, no. Now, I don't remember the kids relaying how their parents died to Sarah or Alan, but Jim and Martha did die in a car crash in the alternate universe in Canada. So they're like, no, nah, we need you to get to start it right away. So he's going to start next week and Jim and his wife will not be dying in the Canadian Rockies. So I guess they saved the children the heartache of losing both of their parents, which I'm assuming is worth headhunting Jim to come work for his company. Still a little weird, but whatever. So the house actually looks really pretty with holiday decorations. But at the end of the movie, we see that Jumanji with the drums beating again is on the shore of some beach and two girls find it, but I don't know what language these girls were speaking. The journey is going to start over for some new folks in a new part of the world. And it's kind of unfortunate. Jumanji just will not go away. <laughs> just will not go away. So that's the end of the OG 1995 Jumanji. At the end of every review, we ask the questions, is this movie worth a rewatch? And does it hold up today? So for me, the answers are yes and mostly yes. So I hadn't seen this movie in a while, but I still found it funny and entertaining. I saw things that I hadn't seen or noticed before, and I found that all of the actors pretty much did a good job, except for like the part where Robin Williams' character didn't really reciprocate any of Bonnie Hunt's advances. That really is like the only space where this movie was lacking in the acting. But I realized that Peter was actually the real MVP in this movie. There's commentary in this film about breaking tradition, accepting people for who they are, facing your fears, and even a little bit about toxic masculinity. The movie's also about appreciating what you have and believing in second chances. Overall, I think the movie holds up, excluding most of the graphics and special effects from the puppet lion to the cartoonish vines to the rubber or plastic spiders like lots of things were very 1995 and thus do not hold up to modern standards when it comes to the special effects but that's okay i found that this movie was entertaining and low-key could have been classified as like a horror film for children the fact that the game targeted children is probably the most chilling thing for me like not only were the children the only ones who could hear the drums but the villain was created in the image of the person that alan feared the most if the true villain in this movie was a human and not a board game this would be like a kid's version of saw and not like a family-friendly film but it was nice to see Robin Williams in his element and also to see David Allen Greer shine. I feel like he did a really good job and does not get enough credit. The child actors were great too. I will say one thing that sticks out as something that could have been better is changing up the romantic part of the story, right? I mentioned this earlier, like the chemistry between Alan and Sarah as adults wasn't really apparent until the final scene. So I feel like Bonnie was better at the romance part while Robin played like a little too oblivious for me, despite only having like a sixth grade education. <laughs> but overall, I really liked rewatching it and think that you will too. 
So the critics over at Rotten Tomatoes gave Jumanji a 52% while the audience gave it 63%. I feel like both of these scores are a little bit low. Overall, this movie is a big part of my childhood and it deserves more respect. Okay, Rotten Tomatoes. But let me know what you think. Please share your thoughts on our social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Submedia Reviews. Thanks so much for listening to my review of the 1995 Jumanji movie here at Media reviews. In the next episode, we'll be reviewing Sabrina the Teenage Witch featuring Melissa Joan Hart. Peace out. Thanks for listening to Sub Media Reviews. I hope you enjoyed our trip down memory lane just as much as I did. If you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like me to review next, or if you just want to share your thoughts on today's episode, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Pinterest at Sub Media Reviews and on SubMediaReviews.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you have a moment, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback helps me improve the show and spread the word to new listeners. So until next time, peace out, home slices. Peace out.